On July 7th of year 2007, officials in Lisbon, Portugal, announced the new seven wonders of the world. More than 100 million votes selected these man-made structures to replace the seven wonders of the ancient world. Winners included Taj Mahal in India, the Roman Colosseum, the Great Wall of China, the ancient city Petra in Jordan, Machu Picchu in Peru, Chichen Itza in Mexico, and Christ the Redeemer in Rio de Janeiro. The contest, however, was not without controversy because many other famous monuments such as the Great Pyramids in Giza, the Stonehenge, the Hagia Sophia, or the Statue of Liberty were also hotly contested in the running to be one of the wonders of the world. Nevertheless, as amazing as these incredible structures are, which to their own credit deserve great tribute to human creativity and ingenuity, yet none of them are the most important building ever made. The honor, hands down, belonged to a building that was not as nearly as big as the Colosseum, not as high as the mountains of Machu Picchu, or visible from outer space as the Great Wall of China, but it was the only building in the world that the creator of the universe and the one true living God came down to use for his own personal dwelling. Imagine that. Solomon's temple that we read of in our passage today is the very house of Yahweh. If homes of famous celebrities intrigue us so much, I remember back in the day when I was in college, my aunt and uncle would not let me watch MTV in high school, but there was a show called MTV Cribs that we would watch all the time. Anyways, it's crazy how these famous celebrities live in these million-dollar mansions, and we love to see how they live. We get so excited about these million-dollar celebrity mansions, don't we? Well, in our passage today, we are given a guided tour of the very house of God. This is Chip and Joanna Gaines' fixer-upper on steroids. <laughs> but sadly, the truth is, the detailed descriptions of God's house, the dimensions, the materials used, the layout, and the decoration at first glance provoke zero or little interest for many readers, even for many Christian readers who love God and who love God's Word. Be honest. How many of us this week, in preparation for the sermon today, reading 1 Kings 6 and 7 ahead was like, oh yeah, this is so fun, this is amazing. (laughs) Be honest. Perhaps it's because, as I said, these chapters are quite technical. There are a number of terms that are unfamiliar to us. Unless you have an interest in the architecture of ancient buildings, you might be tempted to skip over these tedious chapters. But as one commentator says, the passage before us is remarkable and brilliantly illuminating. What we are about to see in 1 Kings 6 is the high point of the Old Testament. Everything after these chapters in the Old Testament are pretty much depressing. In these chapters, we are approaching one of the most important moments in the history of the world. The chapters before us brings us to this elevated historical moment, and it will give us a true perspective on the history of humanity. Now, these are rather grand claims for some of the Bible's apparently more boring chapters But as I said, although these chapters may appear uninteresting at first, it's one of the most important pages of the Old Testament. There are rich lessons to be learned and applied for Christians today in the building of Solomon's temple. So what does the building of Solomon's temple teach you and me today? We're continuing our study through 1 and 2 Kings in our series, The King of Kings. And as I've said, the Kings is about the short-lived peaceful reign of the United Kingdom of Israel under King Solomon and Israel's eventual division 
and downfall and decimation and exile. But as I've repeated, the main message of the kings is clear. Kings fail and kingdoms fall, but the word of the Lord stands. Listen, this truth rings certain even for Christians today, for you, for us who trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. We may not have a permanent church building to meet, but it is the word of God that unites us together as a church. Amen? And it is the word of God that will sustain us and keep us to the end. And you, the members of NCBC, have been invited by God to participate in the work the Lord is doing among us to establish a faithful local gospel preaching church through His Word. Even through defeat, disappointments, and discouragements, God keeps His covenant promise to His people and establishes the throne of David's offspring forever. Brothers and sisters, even in the midst of the chaos of life, we can hope in God's promises to us. His King sovereignly reigns in power. Amen? Our last message on 1 Kings 5 taught us how God prepared Solomon to build God's temple according to God's promise to Solomon's father, King David. Ultimately, we saw how God accomplishes his purposes through his chosen king, how God grants peace because of the king, how God builds his house through the king, and how God ordains faithful service unto the king. And today, from 1 Kings 6 and 7, in the building of God's temple, I want to share with you three lessons from the building of Solomon's temple to ask it in a question form, what does the building of Solomon's temple teach you and me today? What does the building of Solomon's temple teach us today? Here's the outline so you know what's ahead. Point number one, the building of Solomon's temple foreshadows the fulfillment of God's covenant promise. The building of Solomon's temple foreshadows the fulfillment of God's covenant promise from chapter 6, verses 1 through 38. And point number two, it examines our spiritual priorities from chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Examines our spiritual priorities. And point number three, it anticipates Christ's coming kingdom from chapter 7, verses 13 through the remaining verses. Foreshadows the fulfillment of God's covenant promise. Examines our spiritual priorities. Point number three, anticipates Christ's coming kingdom. Brothers and sisters, I pray through this message you will be reminded afresh of the King of Kings who dwells with this people today and forever. I pray that you would be encouraged anew to serve our King faithfully because He has called you graciously and mercifully as one of His own. Guests and visitors, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today in this irregular gathering of our weekly Sunday services. I've been told by church planting experts that in Montgomery County, Christians are generalized by nominalism. They don't go to church on Sunday afternoons. It's just abnormal. It's unthinkable that Christians in Montgomery County generally go to church on Sunday afternoons. Well, for whatever crazy reason, you are here on a Sunday evening. And we believe that it is no mere coincidence. We believe the sovereign Lord led you here tonight. We believe the Lord wants to speak to you a word. Amen? Scripture says... Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. So we pray that you would hear his words and see him and know him for who he is, the King of kings and Lord of lords and the King of your soul. We pray that you would turn to him and trust in him today. So without further ado, let's turn now to his word found on or around page 284, 285 in your Bibles. And as you turn there, please, I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open for the entire duration of the message. 
so that you know that this is God's word for you to encourage you and grow you in knowledge and love for him. We have an unusually long passage, so let's get right into the first point. What does building of Solomon's temple teach us today? Point number one, it foreshadows the fulfillment of God's covenant promise. The first observation we can make from this passage is that the structure of the passage shows us clearly what this chapter is about, chapter 6. You'll see the phrase at the end of verse 1. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 6, he, Solomon, began to build a house of the Lord. And the phrase at the end of verse 38 of chapter 6 says, he, Solomon, was seven years in building it. This is what the biblical scholars call an inclusio, which is a literary device which forms the bookend And every detail that is sandwiched between these bookends forms the content. So chapter 6 is clearly about building of Solomon's temple. But what about the building of Solomon's temple is important? Well, that's where chapter 7 comes in. Look at first verse of chapter 6 again. In the 480th year, after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. And look at the last verse, verse 51 of chapter 7. It says this, And Solomon brought in the thing that David his father had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. What these verses show us is that the building of Solomon's temple was not merely Solomon's construction project. It is the fulfillment of God's covenantal promise. The author's intention of this passage is clear. The building of Solomon's temple is God keeping his covenant promise. God was still writing his salvation story through the history of Israel. As verse 1 again says, in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. This is the only event in the Bible that is dated in terms of the number of years from the Exodus. The Exodus was the beginning of something. It has been 480 years since Israel came out from the land of Egypt. It's been 480 years since Israel was first born as a nation. Just as a side note, it's so interesting that Israel was a nation, a people, before it possessed a land. I hope this reality and theme encourages us as a church, as New Covenant Baptist Church, again, that the church is not bound by a building or the land it possesses, but the people that God has set apart for himself, that God has a purpose for his people. Anyways, back to the topic, the implication of 1 Kings 6.1 is that what we are about to read about is the most important thing since the Exodus. So much has happened since Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. There has been the conquest of lands in the days of Joshua, the repeated deliverances from enemies through the years of the judges, the reigns of King Saul and King David, and all of it had been leading to this point. If the Exodus was the beginning of something, what we're about to hear about and read about is the end, the goal, the culmination of the covenants being fulfilled. The establishments of God's chosen king on the throne and God's presence finally dwelling with God's people in God's promised land. Now, where we get this idea is in the number 480. That's because the number 480 may be literal or symbolic. 
this date is about theology as well as chronology. So, 480 years, that, that number, may be literally 480 years, or it may be a way of saying by the author, in the 12th generation, a generation being about 40 years. So 12 generations may convey a sense of completeness. Literally, it can mean about 240 to 300 years. But no matter how you understand it, no matter how you take it, the more important point is this, that the period since the Exodus has reached its culmination. This moment was what Moses and the people of Israel had sung about in Exodus 15, 17 through 18, which says, You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Not only that, Moses had anticipated this day as he addressed the people of Israel before they enter the promised land in Deuteronomy 12, 10 through 11, which says this, But when you go over the land, Jordan, and live in the land that your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes and contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offering that you vow to the Lord. So that time had at last come to provide a dwelling place for the name of the Lord because the Lord had given rest on every side and there was neither adversary nor misfortune according to 1 Kings 5.4. And it was the second month of the fourth year of Solomon's reign, the month of Ziv, which roughly corresponds to April or May in modern terms, that King Solomon began to build the house of the Lord. As one commentator says, there has never been in the history of the world a more significant building than this house. The world's greatest skyscrapers, the most beautiful architecture, the grandest designs pale into insignificance beside the building we are about to see. He continues, it would be a great mistake, however, to think that it was the building itself that mattered. What matters is what the building represented, what the building points us towards. That's why the author is very intentional about referring to Solomon's temple, not as a temple, but as mainly a house. You'll see the author very seldomly use the term temple in this whole two chapters, maybe three or four times. But the term house is used very, very frequently over 30 times in this passage. The building of God's house in 1 Kings 6 and 7 is to remind us of the promise of 2 Samuel 7, 4 through 17, the covenant made to David where house, the word house, was the key word. Again, the whole point of the building of Solomon's temple is to point us to God's covenant promise. The rest of chapter 6, verses 3 through 38 presents to us a guided tour of the house of the Lord. So verses 3 through 14 is generally about the exterior of the temple. Verses 15 through 28 is generally about the interior of the temple. Verses 29 through 36 details the furnishings of the temple. Now, Pastor Tony Marita, in his commentary, reminds us these chapters are not meant to be a construction manual. Reading these chapters, you're not going to have the architectural blueprint on how to replicate the same building. But rather, the purpose of the details is for us to behold the glory of God. So understand, we're not going to understand every detail of the building, 
and its theological significance, but I'm going to try to point out some of the highlights. First, verse 2 tells us the dimensions of the house of God was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. As you saw in the video, a cubit is the distance from the elbow to the fingertips. So we can roughly translate the dimensions as about 90 feet in length, the distance from home plate to first base in a professional baseball field. 30 feet wide, first down in a football field. 45 feet high, about a four-story building. Roughly speaking, it was about the size of a church sanctuary that would seat about 250 people. But proportionately, it was narrow and tall, the height of a four-story building, kind of like the townhomes which are being built around Montgomery County, maybe kind of like James Lee's house or uh, Eric and Emily's house, narrow and tall. So it's not a huge building by any means, relatively speaking. It was about double the dimensions of the tent or the temporary tabernacle constructed in the days of Moses, only about three times as high. Verses 3 and 4 tells us about the vestibule or the porch in front of the nave, which is the main hall. So we are looking at the wide entry porch as well as the windows of the house. Verses 5 through 6 tells us about the side rooms around the whole structure, except for the front, presumably rooms which would be used for storage or other practical functions. Now verse 7, look at verse 7, tells us something unusual and interesting. Look at verse 7, which says this, When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. In chapter 5, we saw how Solomon deployed thousands of workers to acquire stone for the house of the Lord, which they brought back to the city. The skilled workmen cut the stones perfectly, and then without a sound, they puzzled these stones together to where it belonged exactly. The point of this is that this house was no ordinary house. It was the house of God. Many of you know, a few years ago, my family went through the process of building our new home in Gaithersburg. And let me tell you, it was one of the most grueling processes ever that we went through. Recently, we discovered a large portion of our yard dying. And when we dug into it to see what was wrong, uh, we found so much trash and rocks that the landscapers never cleared up before they laid the sod. They just literally just laid the sod on top of the trash that they put there. Beer cans, carpet pieces, chunks of cement, a huge piece of plywood underneath the sod. No wonder the grass wasn't growing. Now, I'm not judging these folks who worked on my house. I don't know their motives at all. I'm not hating on them or anything. Okay, maybe hating on them just a tiny bit. <laughs> but what I'm trying to do is drawing a contrast that the workers of Solomon's temple knew that what they were building was no ordinary house. They worked with reverence. They worked with care. They worked with precision. It was reflective of Prophet Habakkuk's words in Habakkuk 2.20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. I think there's even more to it than that, which I will later address about how the building of Solomon's temple points forward to the fulfillment of God's covenant. But let's move on through the next verses. In verse 9, look at verse 9, which says, So he built the house and finished it, which is also interesting in the fact that there's still so much more descriptions and explanations of the building process to come. But you'll see the repetition of the word finished over and over and over again. In verse 9, in verse 14, in verse 22, in verse 38, in chapter 1, verse 1, in chapter 7, uh, verse 7, in chapter 7, verse 22, in chapter 740, 
in chapter 751. Finished is obviously the emphasized key word in these chapters. The picture is, now that the Lord had given Solomon rest, the king finished his work of building the house. As one commentator says, this is the first of several points where we will see striking connections between this building and the greatest ever building project to come. Simply put, this building is pointing us to the past and pointing us to the future, to the fulfillment of God's covenant promise. As to the past, verse 1 has already mentioned how this building project connected this instance to the Exodus, but it's going even way before even than that. Genesis chapter 2, 1 and 2 had said, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. First, Solomon's work of building this house reminds us of God's work of creation. Seven years to complete the temple construction reminds us of the seven days of creation as we saw in the video. For the sake of time, I'm skipping through a lot of the details as you saw in the video, that the temple in its construction, design, layout, and location with all of its furnishings, the engraved cherubim, the palm trees, the flower blossoms covering the walls and the inner doors is showing us the temple was symbolic and portraying the Garden of Eden where God dwelled with Adam and Eve. And like the tabernacle in which God dwelled with his people in the wilderness, the temple of Solomon was to depict the same reality fulfilling God's covenant promise from the very beginning of God restoring the relationship that was broken when Adam and Eve rebelled against him. God was keeping his covenant of redemption. God was showing his people through his king that he indeed desires to dwell with his people again. There's more biblical theological significance in the detailing of the temple. And just touching a few, just again, the doors of the temple mentioned in chapter 6, Verses 33 through 36 allowed only the priests into the presence of God and kept others out of God's presence. In the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies was to be entered in by only the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. So just as the temple pointed back to Genesis, the Garden of Eden, and to the tabernacle, it was pointing forward to the greater and the new temple that God would build through his promised Messiah King. We're going to talk about more of that soon. And it's all building up to something greater and something new. To emphasize this fact, look at verses 11 through 13. In the midst of Solomon's work, a divine interruption. This will be the second of the third time Solomon is reminded and warned of what his kingship and what the purpose of this building project was all about. Number one, as mentioned, it was about the fulfillment of God's covenant promise. Number two, despite the importance of the temple, what God desired from his people wasn't a building. No, God wanted obedience from the king. The question continues to linger in the back of our minds, doesn't it? Is Solomon the obedient king? God was after Solomon's heart more than anything. Again, it's not about the building. It's about obedience. It's about the inner part of our hearts. What's crazy is that the tension of the physical building, the temple of Israel, will continue to be a stumbling block for the nation of Israel even to this day. That's why the prophet Jeremiah cried the words of judgment who never quite get over these glorious days of Solomon and Israel. So in Jeremiah 7 verses 2 and 4, it says this, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house 
and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And down in verse 8 of, of that same chapter, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Simply, God was warning and reminding Solomon, as he said to the generations before and generations after, that if God's people trust in temples, they will perish. But if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commands and walk in them, then I will establish his word, which I spoke to your father David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will not forsake my people Israel. So as much as the building of Solomon's temple was about the fulfillment of God's covenant promised, it was foreshadowing of God's continuing work of redemption, which again we'll get more into in point number three. But not without point number two, which moves us to the next point. Point number two, what does the building of Solomon's temple teach us today? Point number two examines our spiritual priorities. Chapter seven, verses one through 12. Now throughout this sermon series, we've been talking about how Solomon is the chosen king but also how he is the confusing king. We know if we read ahead in the kings, Solomon's glory granted by God is very temporary, very short-lived, because he is not the obedient king. So many warning signs have already been given about Solomon's strange practices, which is why it's hard, despite differing scholarly opinions, not to look at what Solomon does in chapter 7 in verses 1 through 12 as a bit questionable, as a bit confusing, as a bit troubling, Yet, in the original Hebrew grammatical structure of verse 38 of chapter 6, what we miss is the English translation right there in the transition from the last verse of chapter 6 and into chapter 7 verse 1 is the contrast form, but, the word but. You see, Solomon built the temple of God in seven years, but Solomon built his own house 13 years as he finished his entire house. Now, We question why Solomon spent nearly double the time to build his own house, his own palace, and everything regarding it. Five different structures he builds there in 7 verse 2, the house of the forest of Lebanon. In 7 6, the halls of the pillars. In verse 7, the hall of the throne, the hall of judgment. And in verse 8, his own house and even a house for Pharaoh's daughter, whom we are introduced to in 1 Kings 3.1. Now, just as in chapters 3 and 4, the author does not explicitly mention anything negative about what Solomon is doing that may seem a bit questionable to us because we have foresight into what he does and what happens to him. But again, we have to be careful not to read Scripture with our own opinions, with our own biases, until it explicitly tells us so. After all, Solomon was God's chosen king. It was right that Solomon would build a house for himself after the house of the Lord would be built. Perhaps the length of the years it took for Solomon to build his own house took twice as long because the temple was one part, just one part of Solomon's kingdom, whereas everything else that was built was the rest of Solomon's entire kingdom, as you saw in the video, including the halls of the pillars and halls of the judgment, the legislative branch, as well as the judicial branch, if you will. Yet as we try to give Solomon the benefit of the doubt, a own house for Pharaoh's daughter? Uh, Questionable. Why was that necessary? Was it common practice for queens to have their own palaces? It's questionable. And to put the cherry on top, the repetition of the words, costly stones, repeated three times in verses 9 through 12 in chapter 7. 
which are not used in the description of the building of the Lord's house, but only in the details of Solomon's own house. It's telling. Solomon was one who did not withhold lavish luxuries. There was nothing subtle about Solomon at all. He liked what was fancy and flashy and shiny and costly. We know this from how he used to offer a thousand sacrifices in the highest place in Gibeon back in 1 Kings 3. 3. However pure Solomon's motives may have been or not as intended by the author, I think the lessons of these verses are significant. These verses challenges us to examine our spiritual priorities. After all, the previous chapters of the Kings have been laced with the theme and the diverging priorities of those who are the enemies of God's covenant versus children of God's promise. Those who sought to build their own homes were rejected. Those who sought to work for the establishment of God's kingdom were blessed. So dear brothers and sisters in Christ, what are your spiritual priorities? We ought to not be so quick to judge Solomon and cast stones upon Solomon building his own house for 13 years when he only spent a measly seven years building God's house. Because honestly, how much time and how much resources have you given up to work in the building up of the Lord's house? Compare how much money, energy, and time you spend to secure your own house, your own retirement, your own job security, your own bank accounts. How often have we skimped out on giving tithes intentionally, generously, and cheerfully as according to 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8, and given priority to our own needs because we are first looking out for number one, are we? Instead of offering ourselves as a living sacrifice unto the Lord as according to Romans 12, verse 1. How many of us can honestly say, as according to Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6, that we trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and have not leaned on our own understandings at all, that we in all of our ways acknowledge Him first, that we have not been wise in our own eyes? How many of you can honestly say, in accordance with Matthew 6, 21, which says, for wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also? Just look at your bank statements. Just look at the way you manage your time. What does the way you manage your treasures reveal about your heart and your posture toward God's service? Maybe you're thinking, I'm excused because I rarely use my money and my resources for myself. It's all for my family. 1 Timothy 5, 8 indeed says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Right? Surely God understands my lack of giving and service to him since I'm taking care of my own family. But remember what 1 Kings 7, 1 said, Solomon was building his own house and he finished his entire house. His house was in perfect order. His house was in perfect order, yet we know his heart strays far from God in the coming chapters. So saying to God, Lord, after I get myself and my household in order, after I graduate, after I pay off all my debts, after I settle down, after I get married, after I raise a few kids, after all the things that I'm working on right now gets all settled, it's not an excuse to prioritize me, myself, and my entire house before God. Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. It's a simple question. Are you seeking God's kingdom first or are you building your own house? Brothers and sisters, what area of your life do you lack trust in God? 
What part of your heart are you holding back from him, from giving him your all? Is it your singleness? Is it your unconfessed sin struggles? Is it a loved one? Is it money? Is it your career? Which part of your life can you not surrender to him and say, Lord, you first, you only, you're my all in all. Life or death, your everything, your will, your way, your word, first and always. What's holding you back? This is what these verses are challenging us to examine. I hope you are getting the message of the passage. We are all like Solomon. Solomon is like all of us, except Solomon is much wiser, much richer, more powerful version of you and me, but also just like us, falling so very short of God's glory like the rest of us. But that's the purpose of Solomon's story, that even the wisest and the most richest and the suavest and the peaceful and the chillest king to ever live can't save himself from his sins. Even the shalom king can't be the truly righteous king because he is not the obedient king. Which leads us to our final point. What does the building of Solomon's temple teach us today? Third and finally, it anticipates Christ's coming kingdom from verses 13 through 51. We continually return to the question through this series, is Solomon the obedient king, the promised king? And the answer is no. Solomon is a very confusing king. Is he or is he not the fulfillment of God's covenant promise? We can only properly understand King Solomon's temple and Solomon's work when we see that they were an anticipation of the coming Messiah King, Jesus Christ, who would declare in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. Jesus certainly had King Solomon in mind when he spoke of a wise man who built his house upon a rock in Matthew 7, 24. Also, when he said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days, I will raise it up, according to John 2.19. Jesus Christ is the true and greater son of David, the promised offspring who would engage in the building work. 1 Kings 7 verses 13 through 50 returns to the descriptions of what was built in the temple. And as we read of it, every single detail, every single detail points us to him, foreshadows him, whispers his name, and the church that he would build. First, not to over-exegete its significance. Did you guys notice? This is not the same Hiram from the previous chapter. This is another man named Hiram who is not the king of Tyre, but another man by the same name. He is called upon by Solomon, hired by Solomon. Get it? Hiram is hired. Hiram hired. Okay. The interesting note about this common man, Hiram, was that he was not exactly a foreigner. He was a son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre. In other words, he had a connection with both the people of Israel and the nation of Tyre. A man from obscurity who would bridge the gap between Israel and the foreign world. Furthermore, the second part of verse 13 says he was full of wisdom and understanding and skill to do all of Solomon's remaining work. Okay, what is his work? All the intricate details remaining in the temple. Verses 13 through 22 describes two pillars at the entrance of the temple. But what's amazing is the names of the two pillars are Jachin, which means he will establish, and Boaz, which means in his strength. These pillars convey the firmness of God's promise to establish David's throne, as according to 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 16, and God's mighty strength to accomplish it. What's really cool is that David's royal psalm in Psalm 21 begins and ends with the word Boaz. 
O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices. That's verse 1. In verse 13, the final verse of Psalm 21, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise of your power. You see, it is through the strength of God, through the Messiah, the people can sing and praise God. Verses 23 through 38 details the great sea of cast metal, basically a huge basin filled with water, and also 10 smaller basins on portable carts that was used for the purpose of cleansing. Those who are familiar with Old Testament scripture knew the significance immediately. The phrase, he made the sea, is a striking expression that should catch our attention. This is what God did. The Lord made the sea. Indeed, the sea is his, for he made it, as according to Psalm 95, 5. It's indicated, actually, that the amount of water was enormous in this basin. 12,000 gallons of water filled this large basin, which stood on top of 12 bronze oxen, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then 240 gallons of water filled the smaller basins available to anyone who came to worship Yahweh and offer sacrifice to him. 1 Kings 6 and 7 account doesn't address it, but in the parallel account, 2 Chronicles 4, as you saw in the video, Solomon also constructed a bronze altar. Did you see the horns of the altar? We read about that in previous chapters. On the courts next to the great sea basin. You see, these two great structures right outside the temple courts was meant to point to the atoning sacrifice and cleansing of sin, which need to be made in order for worship to be properly lifted up to God through the mediating high priest. Verses 40 through 50 details everything else that Hiram built to furnish God's house. Pots, shovels, basins, which were so many that the weight of the bronze could not even be ascertained according to verse 47. The golden altar, the golden table for the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, flowers, lamps, tongs of gold, cups, snuffers, dishes, fire pan of pure gold, sockets of gold for the doors of the innermost parts of the house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the nave of the temple. Brothers and sisters, every detail of the temple, the construction, the design, the structures, the instructions for worship anticipates continuing fulfillment of God's covenant promises through his Messiah King Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom which will be established forever. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the man from obscurity that's pointing to here. Born of a virgin, truly God, truly man, who would bridge the gap between Israel and the Gentile world, full of wisdom and understanding. 1 Corinthians one twenty four says, Jesus is the wisdom of God who builds God's house. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the pillars Jachin and Boaz who establishes God's house in the strength of his might. As according to Psalm 18, he is the rock and fortress and deliverer. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was the atoning sacrifice upon the altar of the cross who took away the sins of man, sins of the past, present, and future, who would bear upon himself the wrath of God reserved for sinners. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the matchless sea of cleansing upon whom our sinful souls can be washed white as snow. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the mediating high priest who alone can enter the Holy of Holies to usher us into the presence of God in order that God can dwell with us. Not only that, Jesus says he is the bread of life. Jesus says he is the door. Jesus says, I am the light. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Dr. Phil Riken says Jesus is the one, not Solomon, as God warned in 1 Kings 6, 11 through 13. It is Jesus who kept all of the if commands of the law that opened up all the then promises of the gospel for everyone who believes in him. This is why Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, write this verse down. Hebrews 9, 23 and 24 says of Jesus, 
it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves, which better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear before us in God's presence. That's why 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5 says, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. No wonder the stones did not make any noises in Solomon's temple because they were supposed to resemble living stones fitting perfectly together. Goodness, we can go on of how Solomon, his temple, and his work is the fulfillment and anticipation of Christ's kingdom. How Solomon's temple is a glimpse of Christ's church. But Colossians 2 verse 17 sums it up well. These are the shadows of the things to come. But the substance is Christ. Guests and visitors, just as Solomon's temple anticipated Christ's coming kingdom, we on the flip side of history can look back to the first coming of Christ and find assurance in his salvation and the certainty of his return. When we will enter with him and all who love and fear his name into the eternal house of God. If you are here and you are not a Christian, or are not certain that you are. I want to ask you a question. Are you certain you can completely reject the details of over 4,000 years of Christian history? Can you be confident? Man, this is just made up. This is not true. Can you truly pass it up as fiction or a figment of billions of people's imaginations throughout the generations? The Christian faith has endured because even through kings and kingdoms who rose and, and fell, the word of God stands forever what truth on whom can you stand firm in days of distress Jesus invites you to call on him and trust on him today repent that means to turn from trusting in the things of this world or in yourself believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you and trust in him with your whole life today and tomorrow and forevermore if you're interested in knowing more about how you can follow Jesus the people of this church will be happy to speak to you about how amazing it is to follow Christ. And the pastors of this church will be standing at the back doors ready to speak to you and pray with you. Let's conclude. Brothers and sisters of NCBC, verse 51 says, Thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. The English word finished has appeared eight times in 1 Kings 6 and 7. In five places, finished represents the Hebrew word that was used of God finishing his work of creation. In two places, the Hebrew word has a sense of completeness or perfection of what has been finished. In chapter 6, verse 22. In chapter 7, verse 22. And the last verse of the account has a different word. It has a meaning of peace and wholeness and resonates Solomon's own name, Shalom. You see, the completion of the house represented the peace of the kingdom of God and his king. Be encouraged by this, brothers and sisters. Jesus is the greater Solomon who built a greater new temple. Matthew 12, 6 says Jesus is the new and greater temple. And it says that Jesus is the greater and new Solomon. Revelation 21, 22 says, And I saw no temple in that heavenly city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. In Christ, you and I have shalom. In Christ, peace has come. Peace between God and man, 
peace between man and man, and peace within our own hearts. We ought not to be troubled. Christ is our home. We are his church. And through Christ, we will soon be home. And so may we proclaim the good news of his shalom who dwells with us until he returns. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That is our prayer. That is our hope. That is our assurance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us this Sunday evening that the church is not made of hands, but by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Father, that the church is not a building, but a people who have been graced by your mercy and steadfast love and your covenant promises. Father, we stand before you today confident by the power of Jesus Christ who died and rose again, who has called us as your own. Father, we stand confident today that no matter what trials, troubles, and distresses may come, we can stand confident that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords who will persevere your people to the end. We love you. We thank you for this truth and for this reminder, for this encouragement. Encourage your people today, we pray, for your glory and our good in Jesus' name.